Welcome to Quick Brain, bite-sized brain hacks for busy people who want to learn faster and achieve more. I'm your coach, Jim Quick. Free your mind. Let's imagine if we could access 100% of our brain's capacity. I wasn't high, wasn't wired, just clear. I knew what I needed to do and how to do it. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Welcome back, Quick Brain. So, what is the secret to asking great questions? If you're a longtime listener or more of a new listener to my trainings, you know I always tell people that questions are the answer. That if you want greater understanding, greater comprehension when you read, ask better questions. And so that's going to be the topic of today's podcast. And I can't think of one better person than our guest today. Our guest is Cal Fussman. Cal, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Cal, I'm such a big admirer of your work. You've interviewed every icon imaginable, everyone from Gorbachev to Muhammad Ali. And I remember you specifically, I, when you had spoken at our event, you were telling your story about Muhammad Ali and he had just passed. Yeah, it was like the day after. And so it was really moving moment for me to get up and tell that story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link in our podcast notes to your presentation because that blew away our clients and that audience. Muhammad Ali is such an icon, you know, in terms of what he symbolizes for to so many of us and your tribute to him. It was really legendary. So thank you for that. So I'll put a link in the show notes and join our Facebook group and we'll put the link in there. It's free. So your interviews are epic. And the conversations you have with people, you could tell when you ask questions that you really want to know what the answers are. It's an art and a science. I mean, were you born with this ability or is it something that you train and eventually because of all the people you interviewed? I think a lot of it is inherent. And then a lot of it came through training. But I'll take you back to November 1963. So I'm in second grade. And I'm sitting in the middle of the room. Miss Jaffe, I remember she gets up and walks out of the room, didn't know why. And she walks back in and her complexion has changed. She's much paler. It's like a different person. And she stands in front of the class. And by the way she's talking so calmly, you could tell something's wrong. And she's telling us that President Kennedy has just been shot. So we're almost at the end of the school day and they let everybody home. Everybody races straight to their TV to hear the news. President Kennedy has been assassinated and we've got a new president, Lyndon B. Johnson. Now I had just turned seven years old the week before. This is really my first confrontation with death. My parents didn't know how I was going to react, my little brother. And so they call me over to the table at night to let me know, Cal, this is a terrible thing that happened, but you got to be aware this has happened before in our country's history. We have a way of dealing with it. And that is why the vice president steps up, becomes a president, and our new president is Lyndon B. Johnson. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, things are going to return to normal. We're going to have breakfast like we ordinarily do. And 
in a few days, everything will go back to the way it was. So I'm sitting down at the table and this is where your question comes in. Like, where did this come from? I don't know, but I'm thinking this guy, Lyndon B. Johnson, he probably wanted to be the president, but how does he feel? Because he's only the president because President Kennedy was assassinated. So maybe he's sad. Oh, maybe he's scared that they're going to want to kill him too. So when I'm sitting there thinking, my God, is he happy? Is he sad? Is he scared? How does the guy feel? I pull out a piece of paper, pencil, and I just write, dear President Johnson, how does it feel? Really? And I lay out the scenario for him. I wish him my best. And I folded paper up, put it in an envelope, didn't tell anybody. I just wanted to know how did he feel? And I basically licked the envelope closed. Those days you licked the stamp, put it in the top right corner, wrote President Lyndon B. Johnson, the White House, put my return address in the top left-hand corner. And next day when I went out, I just dropped the envelope in the mailbox. And six months pass. And then one day, my mom comes racing into the apartment and she's got an envelope in her hand. And it's from the White House, from the president. <laughs> and it was uh, written by his personal secretary, Juanita D. Roberts. It created a huge buzz because all the neighbors started to come over to feel the letter. Everybody wanted to hold it in their hands. And the principal at school heard about it. He wanted me to bring it in. And I became... A, a big man in the second grade at that public school in Yonkers, New York. And what it taught me was that a good question can get you to the most powerful person on earth. So I learned that at seven years old. But think about the question, Jim. The question was very simple. How do you feel? And that is such a basic question, but we hardly ever hear it. And we never ask it to ourselves. I never say, Cal, how do you feel about that? I already know I'm mad or I'm happy, I'm joyous. So I don't have to ask myself, how do you feel? So it's a very underrated question. And you know, we've been talking a little before, you pointed out people long to be heard. They want to be listened to. And so if I ask you, how do you feel? That is gonna make a connection because it shows respect, it shows caring. And so you are now going to respond with the same level of respect because you're glad that I have asked you how you feel. And that is also, as you point out in a previous conversation, many people in a conversation are not listening. They're just waiting for a pause so that they could break in with what they want to say next. Right. So being present in that moment and asking a very childlike question can do wonders. And it's not that hard to just go back to your childhood curiosity. When you're four years old, you're about as curious as you're ever going to get in life. There have been behavioral scientists that have done experiments where 
they observed that kids asked up to 400 questions a day to their parents. And if we can somehow rekindle that, you'll be asking great questions all the time. It's just that we tend to lose it as time goes by. You know what? When you're four years old, you're the most curious you can be. At five, what happens? You go to school. You go to kindergarten. What's the first thing they tell you? If you need to ask a question, you can't blurt it out. You got to raise your hand and wait to be called upon. Look, there's a good reason for it. If 38 people are just shouting out a question, very difficult for organizational purposes. But you've just created a wall that says you're not allowed to be as curious as you were last year. You got to raise your hand and wait. And then as time goes by, you're in second grade, third grade, and maybe your hand's up. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll teach you calling me, calling me. But then you get to junior high, you don't see those hands going on. And not only that, but at that point, the fear of asking a foolish question at an age where you're very concerned about how others are looking at you is going to shut those questions down. Back in my day, this is decades ago, if you asked a foolish question in junior high school, you were mocked. To do it now, when somebody may have a telephone right. where they can record it and send it around the world, forget it. And then to push it forward, you go through high school, college, then you get a job, all right? So now you're out and you're in a group of people, all work for the same company, you don't know something. Do I ask the question? Because if I ask the question, everybody's gonna know I don't know something. And so that can shut you down. Maybe you're thinking, oh, better be quiet and just figure it out later. And you see what happens over time. You know, maybe you can better define this for me. You don't lose your curiosity. It's almost like it's being put in the ground and shovels or dirt are being thrown over it, even though it's not dead. And it can come back if you would go back to that four-year-old who you once were and use all of the curiosity you had at that time to form your questions now. We talk about children are such great learners. They learn things so quickly. And one of the reasons why is they ask so many questions. One of my favorite poets, Rumi says, sell your cleverness for bewilderment. So many times when we grow older, and I mean chronological age, more the age of the mind and the heart, we stop asking questions because our cup is full and then we can't put anything new in. And you're right, 20th century education gave us the answers more than anything. They didn't teach us to ask new questions. They just gave us, you know, here's how to memorize all the answers. Interesting thing now, now you got Google, right. it has all the answers. Exactly. So the questions are now more important Much than more the important. answers. And that's why I wanted to do this episode with you because we just had this conversation on your podcast, right? Which is literally called Big Questions. So you are the questions man. You've interviewed a who's who, literally hundreds and thousands of individuals that people would know, and you get all this knowledge from them. You tell a story doing an interview with Mikhail Gorbachev. Would you be willing to share that? Sure. So basically, I'm writing this column for Esquire magazine called What I've Learned. And this column is 
wisdom in the words of people who lived extraordinary lives. And so every month I'd go out and talk to somebody else. And in 2008, I get a chance to interview Mikhail Gorbachev. And I got an hour and a half to ask him any questions I want in order to extract that wisdom in his own words to put on the page. So I do my research, I'm completely prepared, ready to go, phone rings. It's the publicist. Cal, sorry to tell you, but your interview with Mr. Gorbachev is gonna have to be cut short. Now I'm concerned because I need at least an hour to reach into his soul and extract the wisdom to fill up that page, at the very least 45 minutes. And so I say, how much time have I got? 10 minutes. I say, 10 minutes, are you, you can't do this to me. Cal, Cal, Cal. A lot of very important people have joined the list to meet with Mr. Gorbachev. VIPs, there's nothing I can do about this. Do you want the 10 minutes or not? What can I do? Of course, I take the time. But as I hang up the phone, this is feeling worse and worse and worse to me. It's impossible to do in the beginning, but now I know, okay, I'm gonna walk in a room, we're gonna shake hands, we're gonna exchange pleasantries. That's two minutes right there. Plus, my questions have to be translated to Russian and his answers back to English. That's another two minutes right there. So this interview is down to six minutes before it even starts. There is no way that I can pull this off, but you can only do your best. So publicist escorts me into this conference room. There he is. And I'm looking at his face and I just can tell he's expecting my first question to be about nuclear weapons, Ronald Reagan, world events. And you ask me where this comes from? I don't know. All I know is as soon as that interview got going, I looked him in the eye and said, what's the best lesson your father taught you? Wow. And he's surprised, surprised in a pleasant way. Looks up, doesn't say anything. He's searching. And then it's like he can see a movie of his past on the ceiling. And he starts telling me this story about when he was a boy and his father got called up to fight in World War II. And the whole family drove with the father to see the father off. So Gorbachev is describing this trip. And when they arrive in the town, Mr. Gorbachev takes family into a little shop and he buys them ice cream. And Gorbachev is remembering this ice cream. He's remembering the aluminum cup that it was served in. He's talking about this ice cream as if it's in the palm of his hand. And the more he's talking about this ice cream, the more we both have this realization that this cup of ice cream is the reason he was able to make peace with Ronald Reagan and end the Cold War. Because this cup of ice cream was the memory of what it's like just before your dad goes off to war, the dread of not knowing whether you're ever gonna see your dad again. So he's looking at this ice cream, I'm looking at the ice cream, we both look up at each other and we're thinking, Man, this is deep. Just then, knock on the door. It's the publicist. Mr. Gorbachev, the interview will have to end now. And Gorbachev looks at the publicist, looks over at the interpreter, looks at me and says, no, 
I want to talk to him. Publicist backs out the room. Conversation continues, goes deeper. 10 minutes later, another knock on the door. This time, the publicist comes in a little more sheepishly. Mr. Gorbachev, Cal, time. And Gorbachev says, no, I want to talk to him. Publicist backs out the room. Conversation continues, goes deeper. 10 minutes later, another knock on the door. This time, the publicist is in a full out panic. Mr. Gorbachev, Cal, please. We're way behind schedule. I don't know what I'm going to do. And Gorbachev looks at me, didn't say a word. He just looks at me with this shrug that expresses, hey, what am I going to do? So we concluded the interview. The column got filled. It was a good success. And when I later wondered back on why it was successful, I realized if I hadn't aimed my first question for his heart, I never would have got that insight. If I'd gone in there with a canned question, I would have probably gotten a canned answer. Six minutes later, interview would have been over and I never would have known what was possible, which is why I always advise people, aim your first question for the heart. That is what will activate that conversation. And it could be as simple as you walk into somebody's office, you look around, you see the photos, Maybe their kids are there. You ask about the kid in the little league uniform. Now you're at the heart of the dad or the heart of the mom. And it's just going to take the conversation to places that you don't know. And here's where your childhood curiosity kicks in. And then you just keep the flow from there. It's like gratitude and those feelings are the memory of the heart. Well, what struck me when we were talking earlier was when you connected memory of a name, which I came in thinking, okay, that's something that is in the brain. You're saying, no, 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 no. There's an emotional part to this. It's gotta be in the heart. And now I know if somebody is communicating with me and I'm communicating with them in a way that reaches both of our hearts, I should never forget their name. and. Whoever I am now introduced to, I'm going to be very aware. Are they touching my heart? Am I touching their heart? Because if I am, I better know their name. Cal, thank you so much. We really appreciate your gifted mind and your giving heart. Well, thank you. It's just a joy knowing you, Jim. So I would recommend everybody do this. Two things. Take a screenshot of this episode. Tag Cal. Tag myself in it. and. What is your big question? Share your big questions that you love to ask when you meet somebody brand new. So Cal and I could kind of see that and maybe even chime in. And the second thing I would say to do is to listen to Cal's new podcast and it's called Big Questions. This is the show you want to listen to because if you want big answers, you have to ask big questions. Questions really are the answer. That's beautifully put, Jim. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Want to double your brain speed and memory power? If you'd like to learn rapidly and get ahead faster, I'd like to give you my brand new Quick Brain Accelerator program. You will discover exactly what I teach my clients to learn, read, and remember anything in half the time. There is no charge. It's my gift to you for being one of our subscribers. That's K W I K Brain 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com or simply text the word podcast to 916-822-7246 and we'll send you a direct link. That's 916-82-BRAIN. Growing up struggling with learning challenges from a childhood brain injury, it's been my life's mission to help you have your very best brain so you can win more every single day. Now, one more quick brain? Here are four ways to fast track your results and lock in what you just learned into your long-term memory. Remember FAST, F-A-S-T. The F stands for Facebook. You're not alone on this journey. I invite you to join our free private online group. There you can connect with me, your fellow brain lovers, links to resources, and even submit your questions for me to answer in future episodes. Go to quickbrain.com. That's K-W-I-K brain.com. The A stands for apply. Act on what you learned today. Remember, knowledge is not power. It's potential power. It only becomes power when you use it. So use what you just learned. The S stands for subscribe. Don't miss the next episode and other free brain training. And finally, the T stands for teach. You want to learn faster now? The key is to lock it in right away by teaching it to someone else. When you teach something, you get to learn it twice. Here's a simple way to do that. Leave a review on iTunes. Leave a review with your biggest takeaway from this episode. You could also post and share this podcast on your social media. It helps us spread our mission of building better, brighter brains. And of course, tag us so our team can properly thank you. Hashtag quick brain, K-W-I-K brain. Mine is at Jim Quick, K-W-I-K, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So what does FAST stand for? Facebook, apply, subscribe, teach. I'll see you in our next episode of Quick Brain. Until then, remember, you are faster and smarter than you think.